I'm your host, Alex, and welcome to the Levantini Podcast, a show about Near Eastern history, language, and culture. To learn more about the show and get in touch, you can visit our website at levantinipod.com. Professor Benjamin Sommer is a biblical scholar and Jewish theologian. He's a professor of Bible at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. He's the author of the book, Revelation and Authority, Sinai and Jewish Scripture and Tradition, which examines how the biblical authors conceived of the revelation at Sinai as both a collaborative and a participatory event. You can find a link to purchase his book on Amazon in the show notes. I had a great time speaking with him, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, we're live. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad we finally got to connect after a lot of back and forth. Yeah, sorry for the delays, Alex, but I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> no problem at all. So I became familiar with your work through Khalil Andani, who's also worked on revelation, but in the Islamic context. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of similarities between his research and yours, particularly as it comes down to revelation as a collaborative or participatory process. And he recommended during my conversation that I reach out to you because I know he's looked at your work a lot and, and you guys have corresponded back and forth. That's how I became familiar with you. And, and I did find a lot of overlap between your research and the research of those who came before you and the stuff that he's working on also, which was, was really interesting. To kind of get started here, I, we'll just dive in. And we're, we're talking about your book, Revelation and Authority. So what is the documentary hypothesis? Let's start there. The documentary hypothesis is a theory about how the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch, what Jews usually call the Torah, came into being. While traditionally, most Jews and Christians believe that God wrote the five books of Moses and gave them to Moses at Mount Sinai, starting in about the 1700s, a number of scholars, most of them initially Christian, some of them Jewish, began to realize that The five books of Moses are very repetitive. The same story is sometimes told more than once. The five books of Moses are also rather self-contradictory. The same story is told more than once, but with really major differences. And the theory began to develop that the five books of Moses were created by combining a number of different documents that were parallel to each other, that were telling different versions of the same stories And we're also presenting somewhat different versions of more or less the same legal code or the same description of legal practices. And then over the 1700s, the 1800s, this theory developed. By the middle of the 1800s, the theory had crystallized basically to saying that there were three or four main blocks of material that were combined to create the five books of Moses. For certain reasons, we could get into this if you want to. Scholars refer to these blocks of material as J, E, P, and D. Now, J and E are often thought of as being closely related, and it's hard to disentangle them. So Sometimes people just talked about J, E, P, and D, about those three main blocks of material. And by and large, although there's been a lot of debate over details, and especially a lot of debate over the what I'm calling the J, E material, By and large, almost all modern biblical scholars agree that the Pentateuch was put together from originally separate documents that basically fall into these, let's say, these three categories. Mm -hmm. There may have been a certain amount of supplementation after they were put together. There's a lot of disagreement about how much supplementation. There's disagreement about what the historical order of the documents is. But almost all modern Bible scholars agree that the Pentateuch was put together from these three or four 
originally independent blocks of material. And the, the set of hypotheses that lay out that basic theory, we call the documentary hypothesis. So what do those letters stand for? And do we have a rough estimate of the time frame that the different sources were writing these, not when they were all compiled together? So P stands for the Priestly document, because the P document, which is very, very identifiable, it has a very specific set of vocabulary, a very specific style of writing. The P document was almost certainly written by the ancient priests, that is the, in Hebrew, the Kohanim, basically the ancestors of people nowadays who have the last name Cohen or Katz or Cohen or something like that. The P document is very, very concerned in a very detailed way with how sacrifices and rituals are carried out in the temple. That's the P document. The Torah begins with the P document, actually. The very first chapter, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That chapter, for example, is a P chapter. So P stands for priestly. D stands for the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is also just very obviously different from the first four books of the five books of Moses. The language, the style, the vocabulary, even the sentence structure of Deuteronomy is very distinctive and different from what we find in the other books. And so it's thought that actually the other books are largely created by combining J, E, and P. And then Deuteronomy is its own book at the end. And then at the very, very end of the book of Deuteronomy, all four sources show up in the last four chapters of Deuteronomy. J and E is where most of the controversy to this day among biblical scholars exists. In the classic theory that developed by the mid-19th century, which I actually agree with, J and E are two documents that were originally independent, but may have been closely related to each other. The J authors believe, well, here I've got to pause for a second and say something else about the name of God in Hebrew. In ancient Israel, in addition to having a couple of nouns that mean God, there is also the personal name of the creator God, the God of the nation Israel, that is like like other gods in the ancient world, because God had his own name, like you know, there's a God Zeus, there's a goddess Athena. So the Israelite God, who is thought to be the creator God, has his own name, which In English, we would spell that name out with the letters Y-A-H-W-E-H. Now, in Jewish tradition, that name for the last 2,000 years or so has been considered so sacred that we never pronounce that out loud. So that's why I spelled it. As a religious Jew, I didn't pronounce it out loud, but I spelled it for you. In English, that begins with the letter Y. In German, you would spell that with the letter J, J J-A-H-W-E-H. And modern biblical scholarship and the documentary hypothesis really crystallized in Germany in the 19th century. And so, okay, so now we can get back to the names of God. What we call the J author believes that already from the very beginning of time, from the earliest times in the human race, maybe from about four generations into the human race, there were people who knew God's personal name. And so the J writer, in describing Adam and Eve and the world before the flood, the world before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the world before Moses, the J writer uses that name of God, the one that's spelled in German, J-H-W-H, when narrating stories. The E writer, on the other hand, this also happens to be true of the P writer, believed that God's name was not known to anyone who lived in the time frame covered by the book of Exodus. So Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of them knew God's personal name. They called God just by the name God or the noun God, which isn't the name actually, it's really a job title. They also might have used 
a few other terms like Shaddai, which is often translated as Almighty, but they'd never use God's personal name. So the e-writer, when telling stories about these characters in the book of Genesis, doesn't use that name because the characters didn't know that name. According to the e-writer and also the p-writer, God first revealed God's personal name to Moses. So starting from the time of Moses, the e-writer and the p-writer use God's personal name, J-H-W-H or Y-H-W-H, but in Genesis, they don't. So to distinguish between these two different narrative strands, actually that appear throughout the Pentateuch, scholars called the one that uses God's personal name from the beginning, the J-writer, they call the one who uses the word God, which in Hebrew is Elohim, which starts with the letter E, they call that one the E-writer, even though that writer does use God's personal name, J-H-W-H, but the E-writer never uses that name in the book of Genesis. The E-writer only begins using that name in Exodus. So that's how you get these names J and E for those two. I should add that a great many scholars nowadays no longer believe that we can divide up or that we should divide up the non-P, non-D material in the Pentateuch between J and E. They think that that theory is completely wrong. And They've got these other scholars, especially in Germany, but to some extent also in the United States and England and France and Israel. These other scholars have other ways of dividing up the non-P, non-D material. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of old school. I think that the original theory is actually the most elegant one by far. So I still do talk about J and E. All of us modern Bible scholars, though, agree about P, about D, and then there's the other stuff. That's most of the disagreement among contemporary scholars is over that other stuff, which I would refer to as the J and E strands of the Pentateuch. And do we have a general idea of when these different sources were being written down, even if they were much older oral traditions? Was it around the same time, or was it really all over the place? Oh, that's where the huge amount of debate takes place among scholars, and there's really relatively little consensus about that. I would say, based on a number of factors, first and foremost, linguistic factors, to me, it's very clear that all of the sources, J, E, P, and D, or however you want to define the J, E material, they were all written before the Babylonian exile. In the year 586 BCE, the Babylonian empire invades the kingdom of Judah, destroys the temple that Solomon had built in Jerusalem, destroys the city of Jerusalem, kills the Davidic king who's on the throne takes a lot of leading members of the elite of the population into exile in Babylonia, and the kingdom of Judah ceases to exist. So that's known as the beginning of the exile. Then about 50 years later, the Persian Empire defeats the Babylonian Empire, and the Persians let those Judean exiles who want to go back to Judah go back to Judah, or their descendants to go back to Judah. So 586 is the beginning of the exilic period. Then let's say about 535 or so is the beginning of the post-exilic period. Linguistically, and in a number of other ways, I think it's very, very clear that all four of the sources are pre-exilic. We can see and hear differences in pre-exilic Hebrew and post-exilic Hebrew, and the Pentateuch is almost completely free of post-exilic Hebrew. Also, when especially the P and D documents predict that there might be an exile one day, that God might punish the Israelites for being polytheistic, for uh, praying to the wrong gods, by sending them into exile— P and D describe what the exile will be like in graphic and really gory terms. They say the exile is going to be absolutely horrible, and they describe in great detail how it's going to be horrible. And actually, that turned out not to be the case. The truth is, once the Babylonians moved the exiles into Babylonia, 
the war, of course, lots of people died. The trek into the exile wasn't pleasant. But once they were in the exile, the Babylonians actually treated the Jewish exiles quite well. And within a generation, they had settled down there. They had perfectly fine economic conditions there. The description of the exile in the Torah is so inaccurate that it has to be a prediction. It has to have been written before the exile, not during or after the exile. Hmm, so I, um, I would say it's very, very clear that all four documents are pre-exilic. However, a great many of my colleagues, probably the majority of modern Bible scholars, claim that the P document, at least in its current form, was written during and after the exile. Most of them would probably say it depends on oral traditions that go go back to the period before the exile, but it takes shape during and after the exile. And that's probably the majority of scholars. I think that they're not really paying enough attention to the linguistic evidence. I think that they're not paying enough attention to the evidence of the content of the P document, which just doesn't really fit the exilic reality. But most of my scholars would say that P is post-exilic. J, E, and D, there's just an enormous amount of disagreement there. Most scholars would agree with me that they're pre-exilic, but there are some scholars out there who say that they're exilic or post-exilic. And also just what's the order of the documents is an area of a great deal of, of debate. Especially there's a big question as to whether the D document is later than the P document and kind of reacts to the P document or is the other way around. A huge amount of mm-hmm. debate among scholars starting in the 1870s and going really up until the 1970s or 80s is precisely on that question. But I think now that there's much more of a consensus that all four of these documents, and especially P and D, the priestly document and the book of Deuteronomy, they were all written over generations. They all evolved slowly. Remember in ancient Near Eastern culture in which there's no printing press, every single new copy of a document is written by hand. And furthermore, documents even more than they are written down by scribes, they're memorized by scribes and they're chanted by scribes. The written versions are just an aid to memory. In that kind of a world, documents can be a lot more fluid. And so it's not like the way it is nowadays that you know you write a book, you send it to the publisher, there's a little back and forth with the copy editors, and then it gets published and that's the book and you're the author. Documents came into being over generations. They evolved. And so now we realize, I think, that the P document and the D document were evolving simultaneously. So it's not as if though P is before D or D is before P, they're evolving simultaneously. Some scholars were able to give evidence that, look, P must be later than D because P here in this verse seems to know that D verse and seems to be taking issue with it specifically. Other scholars would say, well, no, no, D must be later because D seems to know P in this verse and D in some other verse, is reacting to something else in P. Well, both of those are going on because these two documents are evolving over the same time. The P document is being written by the Kohanim, the priests in the Jerusalem temple. Mm -hmm. The D document is being written by Levites in the Jerusalem temple. These two groups of scribes and sages they're working on the same hilltop a few hundred yards away from each other. And yeah, of course they know about each other and they're rivals. They're rivals within the temple in terms of who's going to really be in charge of the temple in Jerusalem. They're also, even more importantly, they're theological rivals. They have different ways of thinking about the nature of God and different ways of about thinking about what the law exactly is supposed to be. And so we see them reacting to each other because like literally these people knew each other. They were working in the same temple complex on the same hilltop 
and they're kind of in dialogue and debate with each other. So it's not a question of who's earlier or who's late. In my opinion, all of these documents are evolving in the pre-exilic period, sometime between about the 9th century, the 8th century, up until the mid or the early 6th century. So in the context of the Exodus story, how much later would this have been? This would have been 800-ish years later? Yeah, it's hard to date the Exodus. First of all, not all biblical scholars agree that the Exodus actually happened. That it's, right, but from where the Torah places it. Gotcha. I think that the evidence is overwhelming that there were Israelite slaves or were ancestors of Israelites enslaved in Egypt and that they somehow got out of that slavery. From where the Torah tends to date that would probably be in the area of 1400 BCE, 1500, depending on how you do the math. Historically, I think it's much more likely that that happened around 1300 BCE. So we're talking, these documents are probably being written down somewhere around the 8th, the 7th century, maybe into the 6th century. So we're talking about roughly as much as 500 years later. Okay. So you touched on a couple of interesting points, but so much of how we think about authorship today, and even when it comes down to biblical authorship, it's so different from the concepts and mindset that you're describing. But in the context of of the ancient Near East and when these things were written, it sounds like it would have been acceptable that there were different versions and interpretations of of the Sinai event and, and the stories in general floating around. Like that wouldn't be a, a radical concept like like it is when you hear it today. Correct. In a world in which, first of all, there weren't many texts, there weren't many written texts, there weren't all that many people who knew how to read. Everybody was getting to know these stories through their ear, not through their eye. They heard the story being chanted out loud. They heard the story being recited. Even scribes who did know how to read, they primarily, you might say, interacted with these stories through their ear, not their eye. They heard their older colleagues, their older brothers, uncles, cousins, parents, grandparents, who were also from scribal families, they heard them chanting them. They also learned to read, but writing was primarily an aid to memory and a way of preserving material. But the way that people got to know this stuff was through their ear. Even a person, a scribe, reading it to himself, they always read this out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, Our idea of silent reading didn't exist. Actually, the word to read in ancient Hebrew or Aramaic or Akkadian, the language of Babylonia, the word that means to read, that we usually translate read, it actually means to call out loud. Mm-hmm. The idea of silent reading was an oxymoron in the ancient Near East. When you're always learning a story orally, well, an oral tradition can have a lot more flexibility. It's much more likely that an oral tradition might begin to exist in more than one version And so if we can imagine that, let's say, there are a bunch of Levites who are the priestly tribe and therefore also a scribal tribe, a tribe that sort of preserved traditions. There are a bunch of Levites who had this story of the Exodus, had these stories about some event at a mountaintop in which God revealed God's self and revealed the law to the nation Israel. And they're telling these stories in the 13th century, the 12th century, the 11th century, the 10th century. They're telling them probably first and foremost Actually, not probably. They're telling them first and foremost, orally. We don't know when they're first writing them down. Over time, it's quite likely that a bunch of Levites living up north in the city of Don, right underneath the Golan Heights, and other Levites 
living in Bethel, right in the middle of the land of Israel, and some, a third family of Levites living down in Hebron or near Beersheba in the Negev Desert, let's say, in the case of Beersheba, over generations, the stories might begin to be remembered in slightly different ways. The law might be remembered in different ways. These historical memories will begin to move in different directions at the point when finally somebody writes them down into the what we know as the J, the E, the P, the D documents, it's quite likely that there are very different memories. Even like, you know, what's the name of the mountain where God revealed God's self and gave us the law? J and P say that the name of the mountain is Sinai. D and E say that the name of the mountain is Horeb. That's actually a trivial point, I think, but that's the sort of difference that crept in over the years. Right. There's a tradition that yeah, God first spoke to Moses at a certain point and appointed Moses as prophet and liberator. That was a really important event. J, E, and P all have a version of that story. According to P, that interaction took place in the land of Egypt. According to J and E, it happened after Moses had fled Egypt when Moses was in the wilderness of Midian, which is either the Sinai Desert or maybe what we would call today Northwestern Saudi Arabia. So these, it's just natural with an oral tradition that different versions of the tradition have come into existence. And that's what we're getting. We're getting, in my opinion, four different versions of historical memory, mm-hmm. four different versions of more or less the same plot that have been remembered through a particular set of lenses. So again, on the concept of a mindset shift on a modern audiences and, and readers part, I'd like if you can talk about the concept of pseudepigraphy mm-hmm. and how putting an author putting their own fingerprint or interpretation on another person's work, in this case, the character of Moses, it's not considered a forgery or anything like that, which it would seem to somebody now when you say like, well, there were different authors of the Torah. It wasn't all written by one person. I'd like if you can touch on that. Right, right. A really important topic. So pseudepigraphy, that is literally pseudepigraphy means false writing, Pseudepigraphy refers to the practice, very, very common in the ancient world, of writing something and attributing it to somebody else. Nowadays, we professors, we're, we're, kind, of, we're kind of worried about the possibility of students, you know, <laughs> borrowing somebody else's work. In the ancient world, writing something and attributing it to somebody else, kind of the flip side of that, of the coin of what we worry about in the university, I suppose, was very, very common to a modern person, this seems like a lie. This seems like a kind of fraud. Oh, you wrote this, but you're attributing it to Moses. That's dishonest. I think we've got to understand, though, that first of all, authorship worked very, very differently in the ancient world. And second, concepts of originality were very, very different in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you didn't really have authors the way that we've got authors today. Like like I said before, especially once the printing press is, is invented, a person writes something and then many, many copies are made of the exact same text that this person wrote. In the ancient world, where every new copy was either an oral retelling or was physically written down on a new scroll with a new pen, every single new copy was an opportunity for somebody to add his two cents or to make some improvement or some change or to include a little bit more information. And so texts just didn't have an author the way that we've got authors. I sometimes like to say that authorship in the ancient world, we might think of it more like traditional blues. Think of like traditional blues music, especially like before the 1950s, before recording becomes much more common there was a certain structure of how blues music worked, the 12-bar structure, for example, some other structures as well. And every t- 
time a person wanted to write a blues song, you're working within a traditional structure. You might be borrowing a guitar riff that you'd heard somebody else do. So you're making up something new, but it's not entirely new. Then somebody might hear you sing that song, and then they would sing that song in some other setting, but they would sing it in a different way. So yeah, if you want to ask a question like, who wrote the song Crossroads? Well, there's a lot of people who wrote the song Crossroads. Most of us, you know, most of us nowadays, I think, probably first heard that in the version that Eric Clapton that Eric Clapton did, or maybe the version that Leonard Skinner did, but Skinner was really just doing the Clapton version. But Clapton's super famous, you know, hit song Crossroads, he didn't write it. It was actually written by a bluesman named Robert Johnson. But if you listen to pre-Clapton versions and the older versions, they're very, very different. And even when Robert Johnson first wrote it, he was writing it within a very specific structure that went back generations earlier than Johnson. Mm -hmm. And it's not really even 100% clear who exactly Robert Johnson was. There's even a theory that there might have been two different bluesmen in the Deep South with that name. There's a lot of different authors to that song. For legal purposes, even if you get a copy of a Skinner CD or go back to ancient times, a Skinner album or a Clapton or Cream album, for legal reasons, Robert Johnson's name will be there. But there are really a lot of different authors of that song. That's how authorship works in the ancient world. It was always developing. So who do you call the author of a text? Well, in the ancient world, first of all, it's also, actually, second of all, I should say, in the ancient world, people didn't really value originality the way that we value originality for the last several centuries in Western culture. Nowadays, an author wants to be known as original. You want to kind of have your own style, your own imprint. But in the ancient world, I think people were much, and even in the medieval world, people were much more humble towards their predecessors. And so if I came up with a new idea, it was a new idea that was going to be functioning within a stream of tradition to which I was privileged to be a part, or of which I was privileged to be a part. So if I came up with a new idea, it wasn't just my idea. I probably am thinking of myself as articulating something that I learned from my teachers and that they learned from their teachers. So if I've come up with something new, I don't want to take credit for it. That would be hubris. That would be really much too proud. So what it makes sense to do is to attribute it to the tradition. In ancient Israel, as time went on, Legal traditions were associated with the character Moses. What are known as wisdom traditions, wise saying, practical advice, those are associated with King Solomon. Poetic prayers, various kinds of prayers that were recited that had a very formal poetic structure, those were associated with King David. So if I wrote, if I put together a new petitionary prayer using the structure that's already out there, the five-part structure of petitionary prayer, and using a lot of phrases that are already part of the tradition, but it's a new combination of those elements. I don't want to take credit for that. That would be chutzpah. That would be hubris. I say that it's written by David. I know that I had a pen in my hand when I wrote this down, but at a deeper level, I'm not responsible for what's good on that piece of parchment. The tradition is is responsible. And so I say, David wrote that. Mm -hmm. The same thing's true, especially for legal material, also for material having to do with Israel's earliest history. So as both the Kohanim, the priests, are writing the P document that gives us one version of that history and one version of the law, and their rivals on the other side of the same hilltop, the Levites, are writing down simultaneously another version of that same story, another version of that same law, both of them feel that, well, we're just writing down what we received from our predecessors, and this is fundamentally a legal text, 
So we attribute it to Moses. They don't mean literally that Moses wrote it. They know that, as I said before, they know that the pen is in their hand hitting that parchment as they're writing. But anything that's good in it goes back to this traditional figure. And so they say that it was written by Moses. And that continues to be the tradition for a a very, very long time. A lot of, let's say, Jewish listeners might be familiar with a famous commentary on the Bible by Rashi, a 12th century rabbi in um, what was then France, is now part of Germany in the Rhineland. It's the most, Rashi's commentary on the five books of Moses and really on the whole Bible is the most beloved, most well-known commentary in Jewish tradition. Children often start learning Rashi's commentary, let's say in third grade. It's something that's a you know, very deep purchase in Jewish culture. When you actually pick up a commentary by Rashi, a lot of what you're reading is by Rashi's children, grandchildren, students, the student mm-hmm. students, people who received a copy of something that the student student students had written down. And sometimes if you actually read carefully, you can even see that. You can see that there's somebody's adding something. There are rare cases where they even refer to themselves as adding something, but we call the whole thing Rashi's commentary. There's no way for us to know exactly which parts of it were written by Rashi and which parts were added a hundred years later, but we call it Rashi's commentary. The same thing is true of the Pentateuch and even of the four different versions of the Pentateuch. They're all mosaic in that they're all going back to a tradition that Jews believe began with Moses. That doesn't mean that Moses literally wrote the actual words that you're getting in in this chapter or in that chapter. I don't know if you're familiar with Ed Greenstein's work and his translation of the book of Job, Mm -hmm. but your analysis of the Pentateuch authors and their scholarly abilities really reminded me a lot of the the scholarly abilities of the Job author. And it was really fascinating to me and how, especially with that author, whoever that person was in ancient Israel, was almost showing off their intellectual abilities. They're using other words from other languages, they're using idioms, they're all kinds of different phrases that are just kind of showing off their their intellect. But but that aside, I the scholarly ability of these people was really interesting to me and, and fascinating to me. But also but it's how, interesting if I could interrupt, at the same time, they don't take credit for it right? We don't know who the author of Job was. Job is an interesting case in that there is a really distinctive style and a distinctive ideology mm-hmm. that are hard to nail down, but whatever the heck is going on in the book of Job, it is distinctive. But clearly that author is using older stories about this man named Job and adapting them and then massively reworking them. So it's not an entirely new work. There's a lot of tension between the beginning and end on the one hand and the huge section in the middle because that huge section in the middle is authored by this distinctive poet who's using the story that we get at the beginning and the end. But whatever this distinctive person's doing, A, it's not something that's being invented anew. It's it's a massive, really significant reworking of an older work. And the author doesn't take credit. We don't know the author's name because that's just not what they were interested in doing. Even a, a really, really clever poet who in a sense is showing off, they're not putting their own name on it. Mm-hmm. And one thing I found really interesting, and this kind of goes back to, to your work and the work that you break down in, in your book, but that these scholars, and I, I think we can call them scholars in a mm-hmm. sense, they were totally open to questioning the nature of divine authority, not divine authority itself, but its nature. And to me, that seems like a something that would be considered a radical concept now. And the fact that it wasn't at that time is, is really interesting as well. Yeah, I think you phrased that really, really well. They're not questioning the fact of divine authority, especially, and here we're getting into my book on Revelation, 
the four documents in the Torah are not interested in questioning the fact of divine authority, but some of them are interested in asking about the nature of divine authority and how exactly it relates to us and to our community. And yeah, there is, a, I think, an openness that maybe some people would find surprising. I want to dive in now to, you brought it up earlier a little bit when you said, the phrase you said was ear and eye or, or mm-hmm. hearing and eyesight. So if you can dive into the concepts of, of cold and then to, to see and how that's presented in the Sinai Revelation text. Sure. So the word kol, which is, can be translated as sound, more specifically as voice, but also at times as thunder. The word kol plays a really crucial role in the description of the revelation of the Torah, the law giving at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. The word shows up seven times in that story. It also shows up seven times in the Deuteronomy version of the story, which actually I don't mention in my book, and I really should have. That is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. In the Bible, we often notice that in a particular narrative, a certain word or even a certain a certain verbal root might repeat a number of times. And a word like that becomes sort of a key for unlocking the meaning that the scribes are putting into that story. When a particular word shows up seven times, seven being a very significant number in the Bible, seven days of the week until the Sabbath and so forth. Yeah, if it shows up seven times, then clearly the narrative is saying, hey, this is kind of a flag being waved where the narrative is saying, hey, look at me thinking about the meaning of this word is going to be really important for understanding what's going on in this story. With the word kol, what's interesting is that we're not 100% sure whether we should interpret the word kol as meaning thunder or meaning voice. God spoke to Moses using God's kol. The verse in Hebrew is, Moshe yidaber v'hashem ya'anenu v'kol. Moses would speak, and God answered him with a coal. Well, if God is responding with, let's say, with thunder, and Moses is hearing the thunder, the people of Israel is overhearing the thunder, thunder doesn't have very clear, specific content. It may be conveying something. We can convey information non-verbally. But when we convey information non-verbally with a glance, with a raising our eyebrows, with a certain kind of sound, we humans can convey information using music. We may be conveying something relatively specific, but we're conveying it in a way that is ambiguous. If God was conveying the revelation to Moses in thunder, then it was necessary for Moses then to translate that thunder into words. And if that's the case, then the entire Torah, the laws that we get in the Torah, even the laws in the Ten Commandments, they're the product of Moses' translation effort. God spoke in thunder, and then Moses had to translate this into the words, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. You shouldn't have other gods. Here's the kind of food you should eat. Here's the kind of food you shouldn't eat, and so forth. If, on the other hand, when Exodus 19 tells us that God spoke to Moses in a coal, Exodus means God spoke in a voice. Well, then a voice, like a human voice, if God was speaking in the sort of voice that humans have, a voice speaks words. A voice gives very specific content. And in that case, it may be that the laws or it may be that the laws came in their exact form directly from God to Moses. And Moses is not an interpreter. Moses is a stenographer. Moses is simply taking down God's words. So those are two very, very different ideas about the origin of the whole Jewish tradition and the origin of the law. 
if God spoke to Moses in specific words, then the laws themselves come directly from God, and there's not a lot of human involvement in creating the law. And that would mean that for us today, taking this ancient law into a modern context, the extent to which we want to fiddle around with the law or change the law is probably going to be extremely limited if the exact content of the law came directly from heaven. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if the prototypical sage of the Jewish people, Moses, as we say in Hebrew, Moshe Rabbeinu, our Rabbi Moses or our Master Moses, if he already was involved along with God in the precise formulation of the law so that the law comes to us through a human intermediary, then the possibility that the interpretive process that Moses had to engage in simply to create even the text of the Ten Commandments, that interpretive process might continue into the present. And therefore, our sages today might be able, we could imagine a bit more readily, they might be able to adjust the law, interpret the law in new ways that are appropriate for the modern world. So this question of, do we want to translate the word coal as thunder or as voice? It's actually a gigantically huge question in terms of how you understand Judaism today. Is Judaism an evolving religious civilization that comes from God, but that from literally the very first moment had a human element? If that's the case, the human element perhaps can continue being active. If it originally came from heaven in the precise form that we've got it in the five books of Moses, the extent to which there can be a human element secondarily nowadays is probably going to be a lot more limited. What's interesting is that the book of Exodus chapters 19 and 20 at times hint to us that coal means thunder, and at other times hint to us that coal means voice. In other words, the document seems to want us to wonder which of these two options is correct. It doesn't clearly endorse the thunder, and therefore what I would call the more liberal understanding of Judaism, or the voice, more small-c conservative understanding of Judaism. It wants us to wonder, to engage in a debate between those two points of view. I should add that all seven examples, all seven verses in which the word kol shows up are from what I would call the E-document, what we kind of old school documentarians call the E-document. E, I think, wants us to engage in a debate about whether the full divine authority belongs to the entirety of the specifics of the law or whether the authority of the law is a mix of human authority and divine authority. So that the idea that like there is a law, yeah, that's the result of divine authority, but at least some of the specifics might be human and therefore more malleable. E seems to want us to wonder which of those two options is the correct option. And what about the verb of to see? To see, it's interesting that when E tells this story, one of the things that E says, actually right after the text of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, is the entire nation had seen the kolot. Now we can debate as to whether kolot there means thunder or kolot means voices. But what's remarkable is that E tells us that the people saw those sounds. The people at Sinai were seeing a sound. And I think that the E document is trying to intimate to us that the event that it's describing at what E and D call Mount Choreb, what we know more typically as Mount Sinai, the event that's being, de- the event that's being described there, it's an event that goes outside the boundaries of normal human perception, normal human cognition. That there's some sort of cognitive process going on between God and the nation Israel 
and the whole nation Israel, because it says the whole nation saw the sounds. There's something going on that can't be described in regular human language. That I suppose we might say this is some sort of mass mystical experience. And normal language doesn't suffice to explain what was going on. I think that in that verse, and there's different ways of interpreting that verse, but I think in that verse, E is trying to signal to us this was not a normal event. And the fact that God was conveying content in thunder, and the fact that, well, at least partially in thunder, the fact that Moses had to interpret that thunder, the fact that the people had some access to it, but it wasn't normal access. They didn't understand it the way that you normally understand a fellow human being speaking to you using language. That's really crucial in understanding where this whole tradition comes from. And where does you cite Maimonides a lot in the work also? Where does he fall on the spectrum of something of God's voice being audible or audible? Yeah, Maimonides devotes a great deal of attention to this in his great philosophical work, The God of the Perplexed, which to this day is continues to be, it was written in the 13th century, it continues to be regarded as the most important work of Jewish philosophy. But Maimonides, Maimonides knows that Maimonides is a really, in some respects, well, in some respects, a deeply, deeply traditional figure, but in some respects also a really original and radical Jewish thinker. And Maimonides knows that a lot of what he has to say about the nature of God and the origin of the law is going to be upsetting. A lot of people won't be able to handle it. And so at the very, very beginning, literally page one of The Guide of the Perplexed, Maimonides has his great Jack Nicholson moment where he's basically saying the truth, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> and he says, you know, this book is not for everybody. This book is for a philosophical elite who can handle it. And so he says explicitly, I've made it hard to read. And a lot of really important ideas, I haven't put them all together on the same page. They're scattered about in different parts of the guide. And his discussion of the voice at Sinai is one of those issues that you've got to take passages from all around the guide of the perplexed and put them together. I'm not a specialist in Maimonides myself, but when a number of specialists in Maimonides have done this, the claim that a number of specialists have made, I'm thinking here especially of a friend of mine, a colleague who teaches at McGill University, Lawrence Kaplan, a scholar who taught at Duke named Kalman Blonde, and a number of other Maimonides scholars, they make the point that Maimonides is, is saying subtly, but if you put it all together correctly, fairly clearly, that God did not write the Torah. Moses wrote the Torah. The Torah is a product of prophetic imagination, and you have to go into understanding exactly what Maimonides in this sort of neo-Aristotelian Arabic philosophical context means by imagination and what he means by certain other terms. But it's clear that when Moses wrote the Torah, he was using his prophetic imagination. Moses is actually the author of the Torah and of the law. So Maimonides takes this hint, I would say this hint, about the nature of the origin of the specific wording that we find in the Torah, and he takes it actually very, very far. He says it's all based on a divine revelation, but the actual wording, Maimonides says, in the Guide of the Perplex, Maimonides claims, is written by Moses, not by God. If we can kind of take the thunder way of thinking and trace it through Jewish history, and we can take the voice way of thinking and trace it through Jewish history, Maimonides is one of the more extreme examples of a person really taking the thunder idea all the way to its logical extreme. Again, that's Maimonides in The Guide of the Perplexed. He also wrote somewhat more popular works that at least on the surface seem to say something different, 
in his famous section on the 13 principles of Judaism, uh, which is actually very well known, but very few people have actually read that passage. They kind of know the summaries of the 13 principles. Very few people have actually read his description of the 13 principles. At first glance, he seems to say that if you say Moses wrote the Torah, then you're a heretic. Which, if that's the case, he's describing his own book, The Guide of the Perplexed, as heresy. If you actually read that passage much more carefully and slowly in the original Arabic, he's actually much more subtle. He first says, nobody knows how Moses received the Torah. But if you want a figure of speech, if you want a metaphor or a simile, actually, I think the term he used there is usually would be translated, well, figure or simile, it's like a scribe taking dictation. Now, everyone focuses on that phrase, it's like a scribe taking dictation. Okay, it was stenography. God actually wrote the words and Moses just wrote them down. He was taking stenography. But a sentence earlier, Maimonides says, nobody knows how it happens. But if we want a figure of speech, here's a figure of speech you can use. Then he uses the word like. So when he says it's stenography, he actually makes clear if you read him carefully that, and frankly, this does come across more clearly in the Arabic than in some of the Hebrew translations or the English translations. If you read him carefully, he is clearly saying, well, you could use a figure of speech and saying it's like a scribe, but the truth is nobody knows what happened. He, he gives you that figure of speech, but a sentence earlier, he tells you that figure of speech isn't accurate. So Maimonides, I think a lot of listeners might hear what I just said about Maimonides' view of Revelation in the Guide and say, well, that's crazy, Ben. Maimonides says the opposite. He says that's heresy in the 13 principles. But if you go back and read that passage in the 13 principles, the passage is actually a lot subtler than people realize it is. So his take on it is that as part of the revelatory process, there is some sort of information exchange, but it's not in the human plane. You can't understand how the information was conveyed. It wasn't through a, an audible voice or, or a language that could be understood by by people. Correct. Therefore, it is inevitable that Moses had to write the Pentateuch. Moses had to write the actual wording we found in the mm -hmm. Pentateuch according to Maimonides. And remember, I mean, Maimonides also says, the truth is we can't make any statements about God that are accurate. The only statements we can make about God that would be accurate are negative statements. I mean, this is a kind of theology that's common in Islam, in Judaism, and in Christianity, that we can only talk about God negatively. So every single place where the Bible makes a positive assertion about God, it's not speaking literally, according to Maimonides. Anytime that you get the noun God and then a verb, or the subject God, and then a verb or a predicate that has an, an active verb, that cannot be understood literally. So the words God speaks cannot literally mean that God speaks. This mm -hmm. is trying to convey information metaphorically, but according to Maimonides, describing any sort of human attribute to God is idolatry. So if you think that God actually spoke, according to Maimonides, if you think that God actually spoke using words, then you're an idolater, according to Maimonides. Then, then you're worse than a heretic because attributing anything human, any sort of anthropomorphism, attributing anything human to God is a form of idolatry. It's bringing God down to a human level and that's worse than polytheism. Mm -hmm. So clearly he doesn't think that God literally spoke words to Moses or wrote words using his thumb or his fingers and gave a piece of, of stone with that writing to Moses. All of that has to be understood metaphorically according to Maimonides. And I think what's interesting is that when you look at the way that the E document and also in a different passage, the way that the P document describe revelation, I think in their own narrative way, E and P are trying to say something very similar. They're very proto-Maimonidian. They can't articulate abstract 
principles the way Western philosophers do. Ancient Near Eastern thinkers, like the writers of the Bible, they didn't articulate ideas with principles and then deduce conclusions from those principles the way Aristotle does, or, or the way that Maimonides, who's been introduced to Aristotelian philosophy through Arabic translations and through Islamic philosophy that he read, the ancient Near Eastern authors don't know how to do that yet, the way Maimonides knows how to do that, having learned from the Greeks and from the Arabs how to do that. So they talk in metaphors, they talk through certain kinds of narratives, they talk through using vocabulary to hint in certain directions, but I think that the P and E documents specifically are hinting in the direction that Maimonides would end up going later on. Right. And when we're looking at Moses as just a part of the revelatory process of the communication and and decipherment of a divine message, you come back to this metaphor of of a prophet or just the person who's transmitting the divine message as, as looking into a mirror. And I'd like if you can touch on that and what that meant in the ancient world. Great. Yeah. Great question. So the book of Numbers in chapter 12, which this fits, this is an E passage, says that prophets generally prophesy through a mirror or as if though they're looking at a mirror. This is Numbers chapter 12. I can actually, I'll give you the verse in case people want to kind of follow along here. I'm just looking up Numbers 12. One second here. Yeah, so this is Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through about uh, 6 through 8. It says that prophets generally are looking at God as if they're looking at God in a mirror. The exact phrase um, is, I appear to them through a mirror. The word mar'ar still means mirror, like a large mirror um, in um in Hebrew. But we have to understand that in the ancient world, mirrors were very, very different than our mirrors. Mirrors were small and handheld. They were made of copper that was very burnished, that was polished. And so you could see your reflection in it. But it's not like a modern mirror where the mirror is clear and the reflection you're getting, if you use a little Windex, is exactly like the thing itself. In an ancient mirror, the reflection you're looking at is going to be a little blurry and bumpy because they couldn't polish that copper the same way that we can polish metals nowadays. And what you're looking at in the mirror, it's also the wrong color. It's all going to be kind of reddish or orangish because you're always looking at this in copper. So to look at something in a mirror, or by the way, even if to use a a phrase that Paul uses in one of the Pauline epistles, to look through glass, the same thing was true about looking through glass Ancient glass wasn't clear the way that modern glass is. It was always a little bit bumpy and a little bit blurry. So to see something through a glass, through a speculum or in a mirror or through a glass, was to see it a bit inaccurately. It would be blurry, it would be bumpy, it would be somewhat distorted. In a mirror, it would also be the wrong color. It would be kind of reddish-orange. And so what E is saying here is that, generally speaking, prophets see through a mirror. That is, prophets don't see things the way they really are. Moses, however, the passage goes on to say in verse 7, Moses is different. Moses actually looks at God directly. So Moses is a whole different category of prophet, according to this passage. I think that this author, this e-author, thought that Moses could see God directly. Moses could understand God 
But it's still the case that God spoke to Moses at Sinai in thunder. And so Moses still has to translate. What we're learning here is that Moses is a good translator. Moses can translate thunder in a way that the rest of us can't. At the same time, I think this is still something of a translation, what we're getting. In a way, in my own book, what I'm doing, I think, and what a number of modern Jewish thinkers are doing that's a bit radical, is that we're saying, well, even Moses' translation, because it's a translation, isn't the exact same thing that God gave. Even Moses can't convey to the rest of us exactly what God is or exactly what God said. And therefore, even Moses, in some way, is looking well, if he isn't looking through a mirror, what he's transmitting to us still has to be through a mirror. And I think in a way we're saying that some modern Jewish thinkers are saying that the Torah, because it has this human element, it has the sort of imperfections that we might associate with an ancient mirror. Even the Torah has a human element, and that means even the Torah, even the five books of Moses, has some element that is fallible. That's a radical thing to think about your own scripture. I think it's implied in a certain number of ancient and medieval documents, but in my own book, I actually want to not just imply that, I think that we have to kind of confront that fact a little bit more directly. And this is pretty off topic, but it's curious to me, is do modern Jewish thinkers ever hypothesize on why the divine would do that? Is it simply because it's on such a different plane of existence and reality that it's impossible to ever bridge that gap? Or does the divine have a purpose in making the message somewhat scrambled and allowing for human agency. I think that there may be a purpose and it's precisely what you just said. It, it doesn't merely allow for human agency. It requires human agency. That is to say that the sort of revelation that I think the E document is trying to portray elsewhere, the P document is trying to portray is a kind of revelation in which human beings have to step up to the plate and participate in the event of revelation itself. Revelation isn't just top-down. It's not just that God reveals something and subsequently human beings begin to interpret what is revealed. Even the moment of revelation itself involves some degree of human participation and human agency. If from the very, very first moment it had to be translated from thunder, from God's communication into the Hebrew language, then not just the tradition that follows scripture, but scripture itself is the result of an event in which humans participate. And I think that we can speculate that God, well, God doesn't just want us to participate, God forces us to participate. God forces us to take responsibility. There's a certain moment in parenting when you kind of take your hands off. I mean, we were just talking before we began, Alex and I, about we both have daughters named Sarah. I don't know how old your daughter is, but I don't know if you've gotten to the point where like, there's that, let's never forget the moment that my Sarah was learning to ride a bicycle and I was kind of like running alongside of her and I took my hands off the bike and my hands were about a millimeter from the bike, but they're not on the bike. It was a magical moment. And that the whole process of parenting was like, that's it. That's that moment mm -hmm. of your hands are there, but like she's taking responsibility and she's just a, really at that point, a little girl, but she's taking responsibility and my, my hands are there, but they're not touching the bike. I think the E version of Revelation is something like that, that from the beginning, God is parenting humanity. God there is parenting the nation Israel specifically. And the goal is not to keep his hands on the bike the whole time. The goal is to get us to grow up a little bit, to get us to start that process. 
And so from the very, very beginning, I think, you know, God's hands are there, but are being taken off from that first moment that maybe they're just a millimeter away, Mm -hmm. but they're off the bike. I want to wrap up the podcast, the way that you wrap up the book, where you cover the idea that the divine can become known through silence or in in Hebrew, the mama, or you also describe it as a soft murmur. And Mm -hmm. silence in this context doesn't mean emptiness. So I'd like if you can describe what's the core of what they're getting at with that interpretation and your own interpretation of that. Yeah, the mama in Hebrew, which is used in a very, very interesting passage in Kings to describe another revelation that happens at Mount Horeb, the revelation to the prophet the prophet Elijah, and we're told that God appears in a kol dimamadaka, in a, a sound or a voice of thin silence or thin murmuring. That word dimama, often translated as silence, doesn't really mean complete silence. It really means a kind of a, a low murmuring sound, where there's something real there. There's something real there that we have to react to, but it's ambiguous and it's hard to hear. And I think that this idea of revelation that I'm describing, it's important to realize it's, it's not that we're interpreting nothing. It's not that we're interpreting mere silence. Rather, we're in, there's a there there. We're interpreting something that's there, but that's hard to follow. And we'll never know for sure whether we're getting it right, precisely because it's so quiet. The passage in Kings with Elijah is, is different from the passage in in Exodus, because in Exodus, it's hard to hear because it's so loud. It's thunder. It's, it's hard to hear thunder when you're close up to it and therefore hard to interpret. The passage in Kings, 1 Kings eighteen nineteen, goes in the other direction. It's hard to hear because it's so quiet. But I'm not suggesting the idea, I'm not suggesting that it's all human, that religion, that Judaism, that the Torah, the Jewish tradition is a human invention, that we're interpreting silence, that we're filling a gap where there was nothing. Um, I think it's really important to realize that dimama means a really quiet sound that is hard to get. And therefore, on the one hand, this is an interpretation of something real. There really is a God there. On the other hand, we can never quite be sure that we've interpreted it correctly. And if we're not quite sure that we've interpreted it correctly, I think that our practice as Jews should always be a little bit tentative. We should always wonder, actually, are we really are we really obeying the will of God or are we getting it wrong? And inevitably, the answer is, at least to some degree, we are getting it wrong. I think a religion that thinks there really is a God and it's really our obligation to observe God's will, but we can't ever know for sure what God's will is and therefore we can never be sure that we're doing this right, that's a religion of humility that I think we need a lot more of in the world. If religious people would just remember that, well, of course, we can't be sure that we've really understood God's will correctly, that we're carrying it out correctly, I think the world would be a much, much better place. And so that's why I want to put a certain amount of emphasis on that idea of Dimama, which I come back to, I quote it not only from Kings, but from a particular poem by the Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai at the very end. And I, I let Amichai have the last word as Amichai is echoing the book of Kings and saying, It wasn't in quaking and thunder that the Torah was revealed. It was in something really, really quiet, something really quiet that we've got to strain to hear. We've got to work really hard to hear it. And therefore, we can never be sure if we've, if we've heard it quite correctly. Mm -hmm. The reason that not only as a scholar, but as a religious person, 
I find the documentary hypothesis that we began with so interesting is that in J, E, P, and D, we're getting four different versions of what was heard at Sinai. The truth is we'll never know exactly what was heard at Sinai. We'll never know who Moses really was. All the documents that we've got that are attributed to him were written down about 500 years after he actually lived, maybe 600, maybe 700 years after he lived. But based on these four different documents, we can sometimes sort of work back. We can triangulate back to what we think Moses said, what we think God said to Moses. And that's good enough. But it's worth remembering that with these four different, sometimes redundant, sometimes contradictory versions, we'll never be able to triangulate perfectly back to what was really said, to what God really somehow conveyed. We'll never really know if we're doing it right. And that's okay. Religion should be aware of its own limitations. And if we can get religions to be more aware of their own limitations, I think we'll be better religious people and we'll also just be better people, period. Well, look, I really appreciate you coming on and diving into all this. It was a heavy conversation and a lot of fun for me. If anybody's interested in checking out your work, your, your books are available on Amazon. I'll leave a link in the show notes to this book as well. If there are any Israelis out there, the Hebrew version will be coming out within a few months. Oh, cool. Awesome. Published by Carmel in, uh, in Jerusalem. That's great. You're also active on YouTube. There's some great lectures of you on there and, and doing similar interviews. So I encourage everybody to, to check it out and look forward to staying in touch. And thanks again. Thanks very much, Alex. This was uh, a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity. Toda Raba. Thank you.